Welcome back, listeners, to The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. Most people who hear that tagline don't really give it a second thought, but it's vitally important for us to understand what movies tell us, because the stories they tell can be quite damaging. As we've seen with earlier episodes, there are dangerous messages in films, particularly ones with monsters. They can set the stage for a host of ideologies that stay with people long after they leave the movie theater. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most damaging. An advisory here for those listening, the subject matter of this episode makes me very angry. You'll hear that emotion come out in my argument. I'm not going to shy away from it. But instead, I'm going to be vulnerable and allow you to hear the pain and anguish that these stories cause in real life. By allowing myself to confront these emotions about these stories, I simultaneously release their power over me. My hope is that by telling you about it, it will also help set you free. The three films I'm going to discuss are Psycho, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. All similar works in the horror genre that crystallize what is now commonly known as the slasher film. The most violent, physically, sexually, and psychologically, of the genre. These stories have no basis in reality, regardless of the very true stories they're based on. These films are a series of lies to protect the real monster, which, if you haven't noticed in previous episodes, is often the tangled web of patriarchy and its structures, heteronormativity, white supremacy, and capitalism. Let me be very clear. When I say patriarchy, I do not mean men, nor do I mean masculinity. Patriarchy is not a person, it's a power structure. It oppresses all of us, men included. This is vitally important to discuss here because it is the invisibility of the struggle of men that is the very basis of these slasher films. But you'd never know that to see it. So much filmic discourse has been written on the women of slasher films, the victims, their sexualities, and of course, the final girl. Very little, I have found, really focuses on the men in these movies. Not the monsters, but the men before they became the monsters. We only ever see the results of Norman Bates, of Leatherface, and Buffalo Bill. We don't get to see their roots. But the roots are where the issues stem from. The roots tell the story of how that monster came to be. In the book Behind the Horror, Two Stories That Inspired Horror Movies, Dr. Lee Miller discusses the real case of Ed Gain. Gain was born to an alcoholic abusive family in 1906. He had a droopy eye, difficulty pronouncing words because of a tongue lesion, and developed a stammer most likely due to extreme physical, sexual, and psychological abuse at home. At school, he was bullied relentlessly for his physical appearance and his effeminate speech. He didn't make it past eighth grade, and he lived mostly in isolation on his family's several acres of farmland after his father, brother, and mother all passed away. His one solace in the world were pulp magazines of the early 1900s that were racist, xenophobic, and totally hyperbolic nightmare fantasies of cannibalism, rape, and torture at the hands of non-white, non-Christian lifestyles. So take that combination and place it in the grown body of an adult man and you have a deeply troubled person without boundaries or societal touchstones. Ed Gain killed many people and used their body parts in similar ways described in these mags. Why? Because he was very ill and he had no one to help him. He was abandoned by society, his family, and without the tools to exist in the world, 
he lived in a society, you know, had he lived in a society that cared about children, those people who fell victim to him could have been saved. There's a saying, hurt people hurt people. And that cycle of abuse that created the game family, alcoholism, religious extremism, and shame, were just as much to blame for those victims' deaths as Ed was. Where's that movie? You know, that story, that narrative? Nowhere. Instead, we jump right over the root and meet the monster. The story of Ed Gain is the basis for all three killers in Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. They each take a part of his story and focus on it to horrify audiences. In Psycho, it's Ed's troubled relationship with his mother, Augusta. It's rumored that when he was an adolescent, Augusta caught him masturbating in a bathtub and squeezed his penis to the point of injury. Is it any wonder then that the first time you see Norman wield his big knife is in the shower? In Sexless Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs, it's Ed's use of human flesh as a trophy or prize, the latter of which makes that prize deeply specific and not at all rooted in pulp magazines. Make no mistake about it, Ed Gain was a deeply ill man. His motivations for killing, while not entirely known, do indicate that they were examples of a childlike mind reenacting nightmares from pulp magazines written by adults for the purpose of fiction. Meaning, the ideas of killing in this way didn't originate with him. That's really important here because it means he's not the original monster. He's a child reenacting what he read about in a book. But that's not the story we get in these films. No, no, no. The story we get in these films are really specific monsters. And you can draw a line from one to the next to the next. And the more monsters we get, the more specific the intent. The intent being monsters like these hunt women for specific reasons. And in many cases, it's only when women fight back like men, meaning violently, that they will survive. The issue with this intent, though, is that it represents this very cycle over again. Violence begets more violence. That's why there's so many sequels to these stories. It's a machine that turns out victims, and the monster is just as victimized as those he kills. So in order to understand how the genre of film is misunderstood, we have to look beyond the monster at the man. Only then can we really uncover the true root of the horrific. Alfred Hitchcock once said, quote, A glimpse into the world proves that horror is nothing other than reality. It's true. The world can be a pretty horrible place. But horror is really dependent on the subjectivity of the person experiencing it. Especially given people's penchant to ignore certain horrors they would rather not face. Like people who dismiss the need for the Black Lives Matter movement or that the Holocaust happened. These are blatant everyday horrors that are so great for people to bear that they simply choose to not see them. Instead, they vilify the messengers, ignore facts, repeat rhetorical stories they've been told to deny the truth. There is a long history of lies in the slasher films. By looking at each one of these through a semiotic lens of analysis of the codes as well as the gaze, you can see a great contradiction. And so let's dive in. The first appearance is in the 1960 masterpiece Psycho. Hitchcock introduces us to Norman Bates young, beautiful, soft-spoken boy who runs a small hotel named after him. He's polite, genteel, focused, and pleasant. 
That said, he lives in a very small, solitary life with his mother, who is very cruel. She's often heard screaming at him, belittling him, and controlling whatever he does. The movie is called Psycho, and this was the very first iteration of what we now know as the slasher film. It was also the introduction of a person as the monster. Like, this was the first time. Before it was vampires, werewolves, and aliens. Norman Bates looks so normal, he couldn't hurt a fly. And yet, he enacts a vengeful killing of Marion Crane in one of the most iconic murder scenes in the history of cinema. What's later revealed is even more horrifying. That not only does a very normal-looking Normal Bates kill- <laughs> that was a Freudian slip- not only does a very normal-looking Norman Bates kill people, but he kills while dressed up as his mother. In short, Norman is a man pretending to be a woman killing women. I don't think I have to tell you the impact this image has had on moviegoers since they were traumatized 60 plus years ago. Even if you haven't seen the film, you know the scene. Marion is naked in the shower when a shadowy figure creeps up behind the curtain. In an instant, the curtain is drawn back and Marion is penetrated repeatedly by a giant butcher knife. But if you haven't seen the movie, then you wouldn't know that's not the climax of the movie. That's, that's like in the early part of the movie. The climax is when the people who come looking for Marion um, find that things don't add up. And there's this final confrontation between uh, Lila and Sam and Norman. That's the climax of the film. The editing in this final scene is nearly as elegant as the basic, in the basic instinct interview scene that we talked about last episode. It has a real point of view, and it's very conscious of what you're supposed to think. So let me set the scene. Lila goes into the basement to hide from Norman and uncovers Mother, a skeleton sitting in a rocking chair. She screams, and Norman emerges in full view, dressed as Mother. There is a very long reverse shot that frames just Lila's face, fast in white light, and it's just her and this horrified look. And it lasts for like seconds, because what we're being asked to identify with in this scene is her horror at the sight of this man in this dress. So when, when Norman then finally brandishes his knife, he's quickly overpowered from behind, mind you, by Sam, Marion's lover. There's this really important cutaway to Norman's wig that has slid off of his head, and then another cut to the mother's skeleton, really imparting to the audience, like, what is happening? It's sort of like a math problem in case people can't figure it out. Like, mother is dead, Norman is mother, Norman dresses in dresses, Norman is in a wig, this is all horrifying. You know, one plus two plus one plus one. So, before I jump into this image and what it represents historically, I want to first address something that we are missing about Norman. Something in his profile that is overshadowed by this final image of him. Why does Norman kill? He kills because his mom, you know, he, he kills his mom because he's jealous of her lover, having been sexually repressed by her his entire life. But why does he kill Marion? Because the sight of him that is Norman is sexually attracted to her, and his internalized sexual repression, he calls mother, is trying to suppress that attraction. So, in short, Norman is heterosexual. 
His mom's sexual repression of him thwarts that otherwise quote-unquote normal sexual desire, and this confused, violent version is due to that suppression. Norman would have been a quote-unquote normal boy had it not been for his mother. But that's not what people walk away with. From a symbolic perspective, people walked away with an image of a man in a dress as a killer. Men who wear dresses kill women. They are a danger to society, mainly to women, and they look like normal men, but inside their closets lurks this monster. Thus begins this legacy of what some film critics call the quote-unquote killer crossdresser. The killers in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs have their root in this very concept, only to a much darker degree. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released in 1974 during that period of trouble in American history we spoke about in episode two. The 1970s were a hard time, and the violence in the films released during that decade greatly reflect that. In many ways, one could look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Jaws on land. It makes similar comments on the working poor, and for all of its horrific flair, it's absolutely more of a dark comedy than a bloody slasher film. It has a point of view, and that point of view is that poor people in rural Texas are slovenly, childlike, and are deeply lacking in intelligence and morality. Take the premise. Five young adults are driving across the country in a van. They break down in a small rural town where they are A, unwelcome, and B, terrorized. Sure, that's a very old story. North versus South, liberal versus conservative. You can see why the many sequels of this film continue to do well. This divide between the developed versus rural parts of the country run deep. But something fascinating that Texas Chainsaw did was to introduce a new kind of hero, the final girl. In her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender and the Modern Horror Film, Carol J. Clover identified a very specific type of woman that seems to survive this type of horror film. She's typically the only survivor, and it's because of her uniqueness. Sexuality is often the cause for death in these horror films. We all know that message. In a horror film, you have sex, you die. The final girl is sexually different than the other people in the world, meaning she's either virginal or queer in some way. What's intriguing about this final girl is that her sexual difference actually likens her to this killer, right? And it's the killer she's running from. He's drawn to her because of this specific difference, but it's also how she overpowers him. In this connection between killer and an adolescent girl, there begins to formulate this troubling conclusion that these films make. Because what they share, the killer and this final girl, is a reliance of a symbolic phallus to enact their power, and not an actual phallus. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept of a phallus, Freud's term, uh, Freud uh, coined the term to mean both the actual physically erect penis, as well as the imaginary or symbolic representation of potency, fertility, and vitality. So when you see something in a film that resembles an erect penis, it's by and large an extension of male dominance and vitality. Knives, chainsaws, machetes, guns, the bigger, the bigger the weapon, the more intense the phallic representation. Think of a Rambo poster and tell me that's not an erect cock in his hand. Now, these final girls survive because they can wield these phallic symbols without actually having one of their own. As Clover details, I quote, 
The killer's phallic purpose, as he thrusts his drill or knife into the trembling bodies of young women, is unmistakable. Yet at the same time, however, his masculinity is severely qualified. Now what she means here is that just like the final girl, this killer needs to wield a symbol of a phallus and not an actual phallus because he's also different. Now remember Ed Gain and how his childhood sexuality was deeply repressed? His need to wield a knife in order to quote-unquote penetrate people is indicative of this symbolic castration. He cannot have an erect penis, so his erection is a knife, or a chainsaw, etc. Leatherface, as he is known in this film, dons the skin of his victims, which are female. So, you draw a line from Norman Bates, who kills women dressed as a woman, to Leatherface, who kills women dressed in female skin. Now you have a visual link between these two monsters that are based on the same person, and the conclusion you're left with is this. Boys who are like girls hurt girls. One plus two plus one plus one. Now, before we can get to the 17 years that transpired between 1974 and 1991, when Silence of the Lamb premiered, we have to talk about a few things. Namely, the 80s. When gender fuckery of MTV, the AIDS epidemic, religious extremism, the war on drugs, the backlash of second wave feminism, the backlash against affirmative action, the end of the Cold War brought a series of extreme extremes in terms of gender representation to the forefront. You know, while theorists like Michel Foucault, Judith Butler, and Bell Hooks were shredding apart codes in movies and TVs from the 50s, Hollywood was churning out a renaissance of golden era optimism in the form of highly saturated, gender-conforming pictures in two key genres. You had action with Rocky, Rambo, and The Terminator, coupled with a new field of slashers starring Freddy, Jason, and Michael Myers. All of these men running around with big knives and guns reminding everyone that there is nothing more American than a hard-on, and that hard-on was to be used exclusively to kill men and fuck or penetrate women. But of course, this was all a lie to suppress what was coming to the surface around discussions of masculinity. The cracks in masculinity started the show in Hollywood in the 70s, particularly around returning Vietnam vets in films like The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, and Deliverance. These films were showing the dangers of toxic masculinity. So what did the 80s do? They put a phallus front and center in every film they released. Remember, these big guns and showy knives are symbolic representations of vitality and patriarchal power. They are not real. Normal guys do not look like Rambo. Shit, Rambo doesn't even look like Rambo. It's steroids, hormones, and body oil, okay? Between these expectations of hypermasculinity mixed with a rampant use of cocaine, America's phallus was cocked, but there loomed another tension. There were now very real consequences for where you could put that phallus. The 1980s saw a huge swell of films about women. 9 to 5, The Accused, Alien, Adventures in Babysitting, Weird Science, Terms of Endearment, the list goes on and on in every single genre. In most of these films, the women have the upper hand over men, and succeed in ways that men succeed. If women wanted to play, they had to play like boys, violently. So final girls abound. 
So did the 80s woman, who was career-minded and brutal just like her male counterparts. Now, my favorite of both of these is Sigourney Weaver, who looks as elegant in a pencil skirt and shoulder-padded blazers as she does in a tank top holding a flamethrower. But that's what I mean. There's not a whole lot of difference. The fact that one person can, can leap both of those categories, that was the extent of the range that women were able to have in the 80s. The largest threat on this list is Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Not only is she a savvy businesswoman, but she's sexy and smart and one hell of a cook. Uh, she played exactly like the boys. And that film jabbed a butcher knife into the hearts of men in the 80s about the dangers of cheating on their wives. But the problems posed by Fatal Attraction is that cheating on your wife required a professional, someone who wouldn't have any of these expectations, catch any feelings. So many men turned to sex workers. In the 80s, two factors really normalized sex work in the mainstream. First, the heavy metal and hard rock videos on MTV featured numerous sex workers, and it totally normalized um, men sleeping with them. Second, rampant globalization right, was happening at the same time. So business meetings at strip clubs, ex escorts being provided for business dinners, that was totally a common practice. These were workers whose profession required a moniker detachment. They were paid to do a job, and no one's family or wife would be threatened until, of course, AIDS. Calling AIDS a gay disease is the story America told itself, when in reality, AIDS is transmitted predominantly through semen, and semen can go anywhere. I, that is one of, the, it's one of the more interesting sentences I've ever written in my life, but that's true. Semen can literally go anywhere. Now, that didn't stop the media, politicians, evangelists, and Hollywood from targeting the LGBT community as the source of this disease. Thus, the trope of the, quote, killer queer was reborn and into the open. As we discussed in episode one, you saw the emergence of traditional monsters like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, all vying to sell heteronormativity with tales of passion and, you know, dark romance in the 90s. But in 1991, the Best Picture award-winning film connected a 30-plus year plotline from Norman Bates through Leatherface to Jamie Gum, a.k.a. John Grant, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill. One plus two plus one plus one. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him transsexual, but his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. That's a line spoken by Dr. Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter speaking to Clary Starling the eagler FBI trainee assigned to help catch Buffalo Bill, who is a sadistic woman killer on the FBI's most wanted list. The plot of Silence of the Lambs follows this curious relationship between this FBI agent and convicted murderer. They are pitted together in these tense, intimate quid pro quo exchanges, you know, where she details her stories of her past and, and he then teases her out with a psychological profile of Bill. And it's kind of this weird, dark, entangled kind of romantic heterosexual thing and it's it's very tense but but that's not the scary part of this film not even in the slightest 
The scariest part of this film is the moment when you see what appears to be a grown adult man tuck his unwanted genitalia between his thighs and stand in full reveal toward the camera. Now, consider this scene in comparison to the interview scene in Basic Instinct that we discussed the last episode. In the film Noir, we see a woman exposing her genitals to look back or take agency at being looked at from her male interrogators. It was to destabilize those onlookers. Now this scene, where Buffalo Bill exposes his tucked body, spreading his arms like a butterfly, delicate, graceful, feminine, this is a horror film, and they want viewers to look at this body, this tall, muscular, male-presenting form, and see him wanting to be without a penis, right? That's what you're seeing in this. Now compare, compare that scene to the climax of Psycho, where Norman is fully revealed in a dress and wig, and that pause on Lila's face is a stand-in for a horror, right? There's no cutaway from Bill. He's devouring himself in his own gaze, because in the scene, he's actually recording himself on video. And when we look at him, we're actually supposed to be seeing him through the POV of a camcorder. His desire to be looked at this way, that's the horror in the scene, right? It's his gaze. So no matter what lines of dialogue preceded this moment in this film, this image and the reveal made it quite clear that we were supposed to be looking at a trans body and that trans body was meant to be horrifying. Trans women are not women at all, but hurt men wanting to run from themselves. That is the story being told in that scene. Now, I spoke before about the intent and specificity of this monster over the evolution of these stories, right? And in Silence of the Lambs, you now also get the evolution and the specificity of the final girl. So Jodie Foster's Clarice offered audiences a chance to now specifically question the sexuality of that final girl. There are many codes within the film that indicate that at minimum, Clarice is career-minded only and thus not sexually interested in men. And at most, having a sexual relationship with Ardelia, her FBI trainee pal. You know, since the final girl and the killer are linked, the specificity of Clarice extends to Jamie. If you think she's queer, he's queer, and the, yeah, it, it, it's just, it's, it's linked. It's very linked in many, many ways that I, I really don't think I have to go into. Um, I've watched this film about a hundred times, and that's not an exaggeration. I can recite it. I, I play Hannibal Lecter, my friend Eric plays Clarice. We go back and forth and can do the entire thing. It's always held a very special place in my mind for reasons I couldn't comprehend until I came out as trans. So when I think of this scene now and the onslaught of transphobia it caused, it makes me really fucking angry. When I look at the story of Ed Gain, I don't see a trans woman. I see a hurt man who was abandoned by his family, who wanted to be something else, anything else, and lived in the fantasy in his mind, fueled by racist, sexist pulp magazines. When I look at Jamie Gum, aka Buffalo Bill, in both the novel and the film versions, I don't see a trans woman. I see a hurt man who was abandoned by his family, who wanted to be something else, and who enacted violent crimes on women who had something he wanted. For me, the underlying truth being denied in Smasher films is this. As a society, we don't believe men can withstand the psychological effects of trauma. 
Men are incapable of self-soothing and rehabilitating their psyche if their dominant gender expression is threatened, and therefore they react and enact in extremely violent ways as projected revenge fantasies elicited by their trauma. So, got it? Meh, okay. That was a mouthful. Let me simplify that. If a man experiences sexual repression, he will become violent to the point of insanity. This is the story we seem to be telling ourselves for these slasher films. The root of men's sexual repression? Their mother, of course. Who else has the power to dominate or control a man's life when he's young? Who's the most influential? Like, my mind jumps to many people, like teachers and siblings and extended families, or like if there's a father or another parent around, but Freud leaps straight to the mother. That's the root of men's sexual repression. So to me, I see slasher films as hurt men hurting women. That's it. That's my big reveal. Do you remember our detective from episode three? A hurt man whose hurt caused a lot of chaos? This is no different. But our slasher monsters don't have a voiceover like the detective does. We don't get their backstory. They're one plus two plus one plus one. We just get a horrific monster and many female victims in their wake. And the only way to stop these monsters is to make those very women being hunted just as vicious as unforgiving as the world that created that monster. If the codes of these films were mapped correctly based on their actual roots, we would have seen that these boys wanted to be someone else because they were mistreated. That mistreatment led them to act out. Trans people are mistreated for being who they are told they shouldn't be. They are repressed and thus retreat inward. And that makes a world of difference. The dangerous lie in, that is told in these films, particularly of Buffalo Bill, have created a deep-seated fear that gets recapitulated in the headlines on Fox News. Trans people are dangerous. They are, you know, trans people are secret keepers who hide their true identities and motives and are just waiting in bathroom stalls to rape everyone. You know, you don't think that has a root in these movies? You're wrong. These movies are men in dresses killing women. Now, that's not trans women, but ignorant people don't know the difference. These codes have been applied so sloppily that they, they don't match up with the stories that we're telling. And, you know, there's a reason. I was born in October of 1979, right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. I had heard the word transsexual on 80s talk shows, mostly sensationalizing it, but there was little to no representation in the mainstream. And here's why. I'm gonna read you this straight off of the CDC website. And to be honest with you, I cried when I first read it because it explained so much about my lost history. I quote, Despite several years of research on HIV and AIDS and the population it affects, we know very little about transgender people and HIV. In the vast majority of studies, transgender people have only been counted as their sex assigned at birth, which not only discounts their identities, but leaves them relatively invisible. Transgender women have 49 times the odds of having HIV compared to the general population, while transgender men are less likely to be HIV positive than transgender women, their rates of infection are still higher than that of the general population. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention suggests certain risk factors are directly tied to transphobia and the marginalization that transgender people face that may contribute to such a high infection rate. These risk factors include, quote, higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse, sex work, incarceration, homelessness, attempted suicide, unemployment, lack of familial support, violence, stigma, and discrimination, 
and limited healthcare access. Essentially, they are living in a society where significant stigma and discrimination against transgender people exist. They are pushed into situations that greatly increase their HIV risk and several limit their ability to obtain adequate care once infected. In sum, it's not trans people that are dangerous. It's the world that's dangerous to us. Transphobes like Tucker Carlson and J.K. Rowling continue to make it unsafe, and it infuriates me for people to look at circumstances that we survive, torture, cruelty, abandonment, erasure, discrimination, and violence, and think that we're the problem. The reason why I had no trans mentors growing up was because so many of them fucking died. And those deaths, their stories weren't told. Their lives were erased by a sexual assignment. They had no one to defend them and their community when after, you know, the reveal in Silence of the Lambs and the Crying Game in 1992, fear and repulsion at the sight of trans women became a running gag in comedies from Ace Ventura to Naked Gun and so on and so on. Finally, in 2020, a beautiful documentary came out called Disclosure, which chronicles Hollywood's issue with transphobia and erasure, and I highly recommend it. It, It's taken me a long time to write this episode because I wanted to carefully piece together the math for you and show you how complex some narratives are woven to obscure the truth. I keep using the phrase one plus two plus one plus one, and this is a line from the movie Clue, a madcap murder mystery from the 80s. It details out the climax of the film when Mr. Body is recounting how many bullets he has in his gun. He does faulty math and dies for it. America has done faulty math on trans people, and we're dying because of it. Slowly but surely, courageous trans writers, actors, producers, and thinkers are stepping into the spotlight to change the narrative. It's been a really long time coming, but we're here, we're queer, and you should get used to it. Because we don't come wielding knives. We come to arm with community, love, art, freedom, self-respect, and are truly disinterested in the stories of the patriarchy that trap us all. I know that was a tough one for some of you. And it was a tough one for me as well. But... Thank you for listening to the stories we tell, and I hope you now can understand why it's so important for us to sort of tear these apart and question everything, because the things we've been told about how the world works can be lies and deeply damaging and take root so long before we existed that if we don't pull them apart now, they will continue to exist after us. So I'll be back in two weeks with our last episode of season one, where we travel back to Santa Cruz and focus in on the film The Lost Boys. Until then, this is Casey Bogomini saying please, watch carefully.